right? I, I can't think of any other single question that has the potential to literally change the world or one that has already changed the world more than that single question. Because regardless of what your answer is to that question, whether you believe that he is God or simply a misguided religious leader from the first century, whatever your answer is, what cannot be denied is the impact that answering that question has had on the entire planet. If you, if you look at uh, the major religions worldwide, the majority of those are considered to be Abrahamic religions, meaning they trace their lineage back to Abraham, which also means that many of them adhere to some or all of the teachings of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. And so including Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Baha'i faith, or others, they all consider the Old Testament, or at least major portions of it, to be valid scripture inspired by God. And so if you study those religions, the, the true point of demarcation between them, the fork in the road that sends them all into very different directions is Jesus Christ. Because, of course, Christians believe that Jesus Christ is God and the only way to eternal life and salvation. So this is an ultimate point of contention with other religions which hold various ideas about him, including everything from him being a great prophet, uh, but not God incarnate, to him being just one of many manifest manifestations of God, along with others who have come and gone, to him being the created Son of God, God's first creation, and, and it goes on and on. And so it is Christianity alone that holds to the high view of Jesus Christ as the uncreated, eternally existent second member of the Holy Trinity. We believe that it is Jesus Christ alone who came in the flesh to atone for the sins of the world. Only Jesus Christ who has the power to save and restore. And only Jesus Christ who is our eternal hope. And because of that, to other religions, this biblical identity of Jesus Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's how he's described in Romans 9.33 and 1 Peter 2.8 and in Isaiah 8.14. And so it should really be no surprise to us. In fact, when John the Baptist was in prison, he sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask him if he was the Messiah. And in Matthew 11, 4 through 6, Jesus responded by saying, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And then he said, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay, Jesus knew well and good that there would be many, despite all of the evidence pointing to his true identity as God in the flesh, he knew that many would still not believe in him, that he would simply become an offense to those who refuse to believe, which is exactly what he is for many today as well. Those who try to make the case that he was many things, but not God. But those of the Christian faith don't simply believe in some version of him, as other religions do. We believe that he is exactly who he says he is, as described in the Bible, which is to say, and just want to be clear, that Christians believe that Jesus is God. And anyone who does not believe that, in fact, according to biblical scripture, is not a true Christian. And John points that out in chapter 3, verse 18 of his gospel account, which is just one of many examples in scripture. So can you see? whether you agree with that or not, how important this question is and has been to the entire 
world. Throughout history, wars have been fought. Governments established, nations founded, hordes of innocent people murdered, and many more rescued because of that question. Countless people have been fed and clothed and cared for, untold numbers of people tortured and beaten and imprisoned over the centuries because of that question. Hospitals and schools and universities have been established and have since healed and educated and trained and sent out generations of people because of that question. Millions of churches established that have had an immeasurable impact on the world for the good or the bad, depending upon your perspective, but undeniably having a massive impact on the world because of that question. In fact, time as we know it, our calendar was established based on that question. Kings have risen and fallen along with entire societies of people because of that question. You cannot deny that Western civilization has been affected profoundly since at least the 4th century because of that question. And even on a much more personal level, how many decisions are made by individuals every single day around the world? Which job to take? Where to live? What should I say and what should I not say? Who do I marry? How much time to give away? Who we spend our time with? What we do with that time and our abilities and our resources, how we choose to impact the world around us and the people that we have influence with. Those life-altering decisions are being made every day based on the answer to that question. Whether we want to accept it or not, that question affects the life of every human being, however we choose to answer it. And so I personally believe that this is the most important question that we could ever answer for ourselves. And how you answer it will not only affect the rest of your life, but also the lives of those whom you have relationships with. And so we're going to talk about that question this morning as we begin a new sermon series entitled The Gospel According to John, where we will be working our way through that book verse by verse. I've been very excited about this new series. John is different than the other three Gospels, which are considered to be the synoptic Gospels because there's strong parallelism between Matthew, Mark, and Luke in their content and the way that they're arranged. But John is very different from those. The Gospel according to John focuses much more on who Jesus was rather than what Jesus did. And so it is very theologically rich and very beautifully written. But more than that, understanding the Gospel according to John, means truly understanding who Jesus is. And although that may seem like a given, or should be, for for church-going Christians, I'm not completely convinced that it is today, at least in the Western church. In fact, I'm concerned that there may be many in the church who believe in a version of Jesus, a version that is actually an amalgamation, a, a blending of different philosophies about life and religion and spirituality that the Western evangelical church has co-opted from pop culture over the past several decades, which is a culture that is increasingly less tolerant of a narrow view of God and religion. We've talked about that quite a bit in the sermon series we just finished as we worked our way through the book of Daniel, so we won't go back into that in depth today, but understanding the true identity and nature of Jesus Christ is paramount if we're to be effective at all in sharing his message with others because there isn't much point in trying to help one another along and becoming more like Jesus Christ if we don't understand who Jesus Christ actually is, right? That understanding 
by the way, goes far beyond an intellectual ascent about the divinity of Christ. It actually encompasses all of the implications for ourselves and our families and our daily lives based on the life and teachings of this man named Jesus who claimed to be God. And so John is here to help us with that, to ground us in understanding the person of Jesus Christ as God so that we can truly and actually know him and follow him. And John's message ties in beautifully with the message of Daniel, where in the final chapters, the angel Gabriel makes this profound distinction to Daniel between those people who say that they know God, but actually worship a version of him, and those who actually know the one true God. And so my hope for all of us as we work our way through John is that we come away from this book not only with a much more complete understanding of who Jesus really is, but also a deeper relationship with him and a more active following of him as we allow what we're going to learn about his true identity to become a greater reality in our own lives. And so as we move from Daniel to John today, I just want to point out again that there's a very natural connection between these two, a natural transition from the message of Daniel to the message of John as well. If you were here, you'll remember Daniel was the only man in the Old Testament who was described as God's beloved. John was the one disciple of Christ in the New Testament who was described as the beloved disciple. Daniel lived out his life in captivity in Babylon, and John lived out his life in captivity on the island of Patmos. Daniel was given supernatural visions of the revelation of the first coming of Jesus Christ, and John was given supernatural visions of the revelation of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And in Daniel, even with all of the dreams and visions and amazing events that are chronicled in that book, the theme the common thread that runs throughout the writing is the importance of truly knowing and following God as opposed to merely being religious and following the culture. And the theme in the gospel according to John is understanding who Jesus is and truly following him as God. And so just as Daniel teaches us that we must know God, John teaches us who that God is by showing us who Jesus is. And in these first uh, 34 verses, which we're going to look at today. He does so convincingly through historical writings, through scripture, through eyewitness accounts, and through personal testimony. So let's talk about who Jesus is as we explore John's writing together. And just a bit of backstory before we get into the text. John was a working class Palestinian Jew. He was a, a fisherman from a fisherman's family who was called by Jesus to be an apostle and he became a part of, of Christ's innermost circle during his earthly ministry, along with Peter and his older brother James. And his closeness to Jesus really comes through in this writing, which was penned uh, sometime after 70 AD, uh, after the Roman destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And he was writing this to both Gentiles and Jews, which is important um, because he makes some of his claims about Jesus to them in a very specific and provocative way as he uses language that, that would have had distinct meaning to each of those groups as he reveals the identity of Christ, the true identity to them. And we're going to talk about that more as we go. The first 18 verses are commonly referred to as the prologue where John, in a fabulously thorough and deeply theological way, introduces Jesus to the reader to the point that the early church was almost completely preoccupied when it came to understanding the person of Christ, 
the early church was almost completely preoccupied with these 18 verses. And then in the following 16 verses up through verse 34, John gives us testimony that supports the claims in the prologue. And so this will be a part one uh, this morning of a two-part sermon covering the first chapter, which we'll finish next week. And this portion of our story today really describes Jesus in the context of his divine transcendence over creation. Next week it becomes much more personal. Okay, So let's jump into the text and see what we can learn from John about who Jesus is. We'll start with the first three verses. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's not only quite a mouthful in just three verses, and we'll sort it out here, but there's also a lot of really heavy stuff packed into this opening. Okay, first of all, John is quoting from the book of Genesis, Genesis 1, which would have immediately captured the attention of his Jewish readers who were very familiar with that Old Testament writing. And at the same time, John is talking about the word, which is the Greek word logos had a tremendous significance, that word, to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And even though we know now, of course, that John is referring to Jesus here, he doesn't reveal that until verse 14. And so to the Greeks, logos had to do with knowledge. And obtaining knowledge was of supreme importance in Greek culture. In fact, Stoicism and Gnosticism were the preeminent philosophies that determined the early Greek worldview. Stoicism taught that virtue was the highest good that one could obtain, and the way that one obtained that virtue was by obtaining knowledge. And Gnosticism was a teaching based on the idea of gnosis, which is a koine a Greek, a common Greek word meaning secret knowledge. It was a philosophy based on gaining salvation by gaining knowledge in a transcendent way. So for the Gnostics, knowledge was the path to transcendence. So the whole concept of Logos and the implication that it carried with it for the Gentiles was nothing short of profound. And for the Jews, there was no concept in their culture that was more powerful than that of the Word. For them, it conveyed the entire concept of divine self-expression, how God communicated and related personally to his people and how his power and authority and sovereignty was expressed over all of creation. For the Jews, God's most powerful attributes were inextricably linked. They were inseparable from and completely encompassed by this concept of the word. And of course, we see that all throughout Old Testament scripture, but nowhere more than in the first chapter of Genesis, which again, John is quoting here, where the beginning of each section of the creation story begins with God speaking a word, and in response to that word, another aspect of the creation comes forth. So the idea of the word for the Hebrews was profoundly dramatic and powerful. And so here's John well aware of the significance and poignancy of this whole concept of the word to both the Jews and the Gentiles, here he is from the beginning of his story very effectively compelling a wide audience from the simplest to the most educated among both the Jews and the Gentiles to give their full attention to what he's about to teach them. It's actually tremendous mastery of the language and how to apply it so as to command this pure and undistracted focus from his audience. In fact, in, in reference to this prologue, and you can read a lot of writing 
just about the prologue. R.C. Sproul, the great scholar, wrote, No portion of the New Testament captured the imagination and the attention of the Christian intellectual community for the first three centuries more than this brief section of John's Gospel. He just positively and immediately captivates a diverse audience by his carefully chosen words. And I think it's amazing, and it's, it's not bad for a small-town country fisherman, is it? If you think about where he came from, his background. I mean, how exactly is it that this simple man, a fisherman from a fisherman's family, could write such a brilliant opening to a gospel account that would go on to lead millions to Christ throughout the ages and occupy the imaginations and intellect of the greatest scholars in history. His background certainly wouldn't have been an indicator that a man like this could ever compose a written account of the gospel at this level of sophistication that would cause the intellectual elite of the day to sit up and take notice in mass among both the Jews and the Gentiles. How is that possible? Well, it's possible because he'd been with Jesus. And he makes it clear in the opening of the book that Jesus is the Word. That John had been with that Word. And so to the Gentiles, he says that Jesus is the wellspring of all true knowledge and enlightenment. Jesus is the Logos, the ultimate source of truth, and wisdom and understanding. And to the Jews, he says, Jesus is the word, the power and the authority of God and the fulfillment of his desire for personal relationship with mankind. You want to talk about getting people's attention. John opens the door and drops a philosophical and theological grenade in the room and then sits back to watch as it obliterates everything that the pagan and religious leaders of his day believed about the source of truth and wisdom and knowledge and power and authority. It's incredible. And he was able to do that because he spent the most formative years of his life living with that very source of truth and knowledge and power and sovereignty. And because of it, John was... John was more qualified to speak on matters typically reserved for the intellectual elite than any of them because he'd spent years drinking directly from that source. So he uses that experience and his firsthand understanding of the word as a conversation starter. <laughs> and that conversation is still going on today. It's brilliant. He not only introduces this word, this logos, to the reader, but he says that the word has been here not just from the beginning of the creation story, but from before the beginning. Okay, it was understood that the Hebrew God was an eternal God. And here John locates Jesus, his existence in eternity past with God by quoting Genesis 1. John's explaining here that Jesus is pre-existent. He is uncreated. So not only is this word the wellspring of all true knowledge and power and authority, but he has always been from before the creation of time and space and matter. Later in this gospel, in, in chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says about himself, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Well, of course, Abraham lived about 2,000 years or more earlier than that, than Jesus. And he was claiming to be transcendent over time as we know it, pre-existent sovereign over time itself and without getting into a long discourse about uh, John's usage of the Greek here 
he very often in his writing uses contrasting verb forms, just as he did in 858, uh, before Abraham was, I am. He does that a lot to make a point. And if you look at his use of verb forms in these first three verses, you could read it as, in the beginning, the word was already in existence. And so John identifies this word as pre-existent. He identifies the word with the Hebrew God, which would have spoken volumes to the Jewish people even before he lets the cat out of the bag about the, the true identity of this word. And to the Gentiles, he's explaining to them that this source of knowledge and wisdom was before all other knowledge and wisdom or philosophy or intellect. So that no matter how far back they may be able to trace their own history of philosophy and understanding, none of those historical sources of wisdom that the Greeks held in such high regard, higher than any person, none of them could ever begin to exhaust the knowledge and understanding of the pre-existent, uncreated logos, the origin of true understanding and knowledge. So, more uh, very provocative language by John here. This was like front page headline news of the day to both the Jews and the Gentiles because unlike Matthew who positions Jesus in the lineage of the king in his gospel or Luke who positions Jesus in the time of the Roman rulers in his gospel John establishes Jesus as pre-existent from the beginning and before this was heady stuff controversial then just as it is now as John intended it to be to get people's attention mastery of the language okay and then he goes on to say the word was with God and the word was God John says hey Jesus is God these first three verses are the building blocks of the doctrine of the Trinity the idea that God consists of more than one person and how those members of the Godhead relate to each other and have always existed together in unity as three in one Again, John is painfully intentional about the words that he uses here because he understands human nature and man's propensity to pervert the truth. From, uh, from the time of Christ right up through today, there have always been religious people who make all sorts of claims about the identity of Jesus as a God, one of many, or as having a special relationship with God, but not being God himself, and certainly not being uh, the pre-existent God uh, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. There's a, a religious era called the patristic period, which began at the end of the apostolic age, really from the end of the first century, from about 100 AD to 451 AD. It's probably the most important time period um, for the church history, for church history concerning the formulation of Christian orthodoxy. Because even though it was a period of an intense persecution for the church and hardship, this is when what we consider today to be orthodox theology, the doctrine of the Trinity, the divinity of Christ, and so on. This is the time period when those doctrines were hammered out within the church by those early theologians who devoted their lives to studying and understanding these scriptures uh, that John is, uh, is sharing with us. And yet from that time period right up to today, there have always been those who have tried to reinterpret those scriptures in order to alter or skew the true identity of Jesus Christ as God, which, which Jesus uh, very clearly and very plainly, by the way, claimed to be and also demonstrated through his life and his death and his resurrection. And so, for example, Arius, a mid-2nd to early 3rd century priest in Alexandria, 
taught that Jesus Christ was not of the same essence of God the Father and was instead merely the, the highest of all of God's creations. In other words, he taught that Jesus was created by God, but not God himself. And so he denied the doctrine of the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus Christ, even though that directly contradicts the claims of the Gospels, as we see here in John, and the claims of Jesus himself, who said that he was God. John 8.58, again, is a great example when he says, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. That was a stunning claim for Jesus to make at the time to a bunch of religious Jews because Jesus didn't merely say, before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. That's significant because he was quoting from the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and he uses the ancient Greek expression, ego ami, which is taken directly from Exodus 3.14, where God identifies himself as I am who I am. Jesus was quoting the Father to identify himself. And so in John's first-hand account, he unequivocally identifies himself as God. And so people like Arius had to develop and then spread newer alternative teachings, which in this case became known as Arianism because they were clearly not what the ancient texts were saying about Jesus. And ultimately, Arianism was condemned at the Church Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And yet, the Jehovah's Witnesses today hold to the teachings of Arianism when it comes to the identity of Jesus Christ and biblical scripture. But because those positions cannot be defended within the ancient biblical texts, the Jehovah's Witnesses had to write their own version of the Bible, which they did in 1961. That's one example of many distortions that have been created about Christ over the centuries from extra-biblical writings outside the 66 original books of this canon of biblical scripture. And so John, the closest personal friend to Jesus of all the disciples, this is a guy who was actually there with Jesus, who witnessed firsthand the life and death and resurrection of Christ, sets out almost prophetically knowing what is coming in the future with tremendous purpose and clarity to write an account of the gospel so as to leave zero ambiguity about the true identity of Jesus. And he begins by describing in no uncertain terms this word, this logos, who also happens to be the pre-existent creator God. But there's more. Let's keep reading verses 4 and 5. He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, John says that Jesus is the light. He says, In him was life, which was the light of men. And so life and light are found in Christ which means that we're spiritually dead and in darkness without Christ. And here again, John is appealing to the nature of both the Jews and the Gentiles. When he refers to Jesus as light, he's carrying on the theme of the creation story in Genesis 1, as it is God who brings forth the light out of the otherwise dark world. It's the light that gives life. It's the light that allows people to see. It's light that guides us through darkness and light that removes doubt and fear. These are all themes that were very familiar to the Jews. And again, Jesus claimed to be the light. On numerous occasions, John 8, 12, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
So God is light and the giver of the light of life. Those were Jewish concepts, very Jewish concepts. But the idea of light as a religious spiritual theme was also very common throughout Greek culture, particularly with the Gnostics who believed that there was a divine light already within every human soul. And that by affirming and thereby achieving an esoteric uh, abstract knowledge of that light, one could achieve redemption and salvation. And so when John says in verses 4 and 5 that in him was life, and the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it, he's discussing spiritual concepts that were important to the Jews, but also very much so to the Gentiles. It's, it's such a remarkable way to capture the imaginations of such a wide audience without compromising the theological depth and the beauty and the truth about the person of Jesus Christ, which as a side note I think is missing in much of the American church today. It makes me very sad because there's a misconception that has been fairly prevalent, at least in our generation, within the evangelical church that in order to appeal to a wide audience, we must somehow soften or dilute the message of the gospel in order to create interest among the public at large. And so often by doing so, we're merely offering them a stripped down, quite simplified and I think somewhat powerless version of the message of Christ that although may seem more palatable and inclusive is often devoid of the truth about him that brings transformation and real spiritual renewal. So what good is it in the end if we're building larger church organizations without truly making disciples? Yet it gives me a lot of hope when I read John and I see a man who so skillfully captivates the hearts and minds of men and women from every background and religious affiliation and ethnicity so effectively that we're still talking about it today. And he does it without compromising one ounce of depth and truth and weightiness of the message of Christ. I love it. And he does all that in five verses. <laughs> that is a stunning opening to his gospel account. And it's a stunning achievement for a fisherman. It's very impressive. Now, after establishing the subject matter of his writing in such a remarkable way, John now prepares to reveal the true identity of this word that he's been describing. Let's read verses 6 through 8. He says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So he's talking about John the Baptist here, who was well known uh, at the time, who Jesus said was greater than a prophet and who was sent by God to testify to the coming of the Messiah. Let's keep reading, verses 9 through 18. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the son, only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. This is the Apostle John referring to John the Baptist. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is the big reveal. After getting everyone's attention in such a a powerful way, John explains to Jews and Gentiles alike that what they've all been searching for, the pre-existent word, the source of all wisdom and knowledge and power and authority, this great logos, the one true God that offers light and life to everyone, the Messiah that they've long awaited is to be found and can only be found in one person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. This is a direct reference by John to the moment when Jesus took him and James and Peter up onto the mountain where he was transfigured in glory before them. And when he says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it's, it's beautiful imagery, if not a shocking statement, for both the Jews and Gentiles. To the Gentiles, the idea that the Logos... The knowledge and understanding that they cherished more than anything else could become flesh was inconceivable. And to the Jews, the idea that the Word, the great Creator God, revealed to them in the Old Testament could become flesh was equally inconceivable. And again, John is very intentional and specific with his wording here. When he says the Word dwelt among us, He uses the Greek word skenao, which literally means he pitched his tent among us. This is very familiar language to the Jews. It's blatant imagery of God's dwelling among the Israelites in the tabernacle, which we see in Exodus 25, 8 and 9, in chapter 33, verse 7 of the same book. So John is making absolute certain that there is no misunderstanding as to the true identity of Jesus Christ and of this word. He makes sure to do it in such a way that everyone in both the Greek and Jewish cultures would understand. And remember, this isn't simply someone who'd heard about Jesus and decided to believe and is now writing about what he'd heard so as to try and convince others as well. This is John, the beloved disciple the one who's described in John 13, 23 as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is the man who followed Jesus so faithfully that while dying on the cross, Jesus told John and no one else to look after Jesus' own mother. And he did, took her into his home after that. This is the man who was one of only three that Jesus took up onto the mountain where he was transfigured before them so that they could get a glimpse of his true glory. Fact is, John knew Jesus like no one else. And so if there was ever anyone who was qualified to introduce Jesus to the rest of the world, it was John. My wife knows me better than anyone. And so if an author decided to write a biography about my life, which isn't likely to happen, by the way, but go with me on this. If an author decided to write a biography about my life, would he want to interview someone who'd heard about me but never actually met me? Or would he want to interview my wife? Well, of course, he'd want to interview my wife because she's walked with me through life. She knows me and she can testify firsthand to the man that I actually am. 
And I'm telling you that if you want to know who Jesus actually is, there is no better place to start than the gospel according to John because John knew him like no one else. And so it is the most trustworthy, detailed, and insightful account of Jesus' life available. You better believe that I'm going to trust John's word about Jesus over the opinion of some guy who's never met him but has decided hundreds of years later that he knows better than John. So he comes up with an alternate version of the story of Jesus and in the process starts a new religion. A religion that very much incorporates Christ into his doctrines but says all sorts of things about him that are contrary to John's first-hand account. Why in the world would we ever trust the word of anyone who says that they have information about Jesus and his life that in any way contradicts the words of John who was there, who knew him better than anyone else? Words, by the way, that agree perfectly with the other accounts given by those who were there as well. Not to mention the writings that we have of portions of Jesus' life by several first-century non-Christ-following historians that agree with the accounts of his life in the Gospels. Historians like Tacitus, Pliny, Josephus, there are others, and yet some guy comes along with a little charisma and a whole lot of crazy, and he comes up with his own version of Jesus, and thousands of people follow him, and an entirely new religion is founded. In fact, even in Jesus' day, People were so anxious to identify the Christ as anyone but Jesus, even though he was living among them, performing miracle after miracle, teaching the most revolutionary concepts of his time, and perfectly representing the Father in everything that he said and did. All of this evidence there right in front of them, and yet so many people educated in the scriptures who claimed to know God couldn't recognize him even though he was standing right in front of them. Listen to what uh, they say to John the Baptist, verses 19 through 34, to finish our text for this morning. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Obviously, they're asking him, are you the Christ? He says, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they'd been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan, where, where John was baptizing their they're dying to identify John as the Christ. Someone is the Christ, anyone but Jesus. Verse 29 says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. He's preexistent. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, now 
John the Baptist knew Jesus. He's talking about knowing him as the Christ. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. There have always been people even from Jesus' day, who are searching for answers to life's biggest questions. And yet they miss the answer to all of those questions, even though he's standing right there in front of them. We have firsthand testimony from John the Apostle. We have firsthand testimony from John the Baptist. We have firsthand testimony of corroborating accounts from others who knew him and followed him. We have corroborating accounts from first century historians and scholars who did not follow him. There's a tremendous amount of evidence available to us as to the true identity of Jesus Christ. And we haven't even begun to talk about the millions and millions of people since who have met him by way of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. People who have walked with him and learned from him and lived for him. People whose lives have been undeniably transformed, whose own stories agree perfectly with the stories of those who were there with Jesus when he walked on this good earth. Look, I, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books. And many of them are written by great men and women whom I respect deeply, people who have devoted their entire lives to learning about Jesus by studying and researching all of the evidence that we have about him. And we should do that. God has given certain men and women great gifts to research and write, and he gave them those gifts to share them with the world. So it's good to read others' writings. But at the end of the day, when you really want to know who Jesus is, or when you want to know him better than you already do, there is absolutely no substitute for opening up his word, which was breathed out by the word through those who walked with him, those who were there, those who suffered with him and celebrated with him and lived with him day after day, and hour after hour, in, in what must have been so many breathtaking moments that the only thing left for them to do once he left this earth was to write it all down so that the world would know that Jesus is God and there is no other let's pray